This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 24th, 1999. Uni Air Flight 873, McDonnell Douglas MD-90 with 96 people on board, is about to land at Walin Airport in Taiwan after a quick 20-minute flight from Taipei. The first officer is at the controls when the plane lands, and after touching down, the captain tells him that the plane sank a bit too quickly, resulting in a bumpy landing. Less than 30 seconds later, an explosion rocks the passenger cabin, resulting in a rapidly spreading fire. Panic quickly spreads in the cabin as passengers get up and begin running for the exits before the plane even comes to a stop. The pilot stops the plane on the runway and only has seconds to evacuate the aircraft. The last person off the plane is the captain, who stays to make sure everyone is evacuated. The explosion and fire leave 14 passengers seriously injured, 14 with minor injuries, and two passengers dead. What caused an explosion on a flight that just landed? Was the rough landing to blame? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi, Gus. We're here with uh, another episode to talk about. It's uh, one of the unusual ones where something goes wrong after the plane <laughs> has already landed. Yeah, I feel like you you feel safe at that point. You're like, All right, we're on the ground. <laughs> yeah, no, not in this case. You land and then there's a fire all of a sudden. Everyone's running for the exits. Not too dissimilar from that other one we talked about recently with the aborted takeoff that resulted in a, a fire on the ground. Mm-hmm. That's why it's important to be diligent, be ready. Before we get into it, of course, as always, I want to remind you to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. We post pictures and videos that maybe are difficult to picture in your head. We, most recently, we posted from our last episode, the Revolution Airways, we posted some photos of the plane, including a link to the video of the plane actually landing. All the good stuff. Yeah, the good stuff. That you can't hear. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. We're, we're here today to talk about Uni Air Flight 873. Sort of a pun, Gus. How so? I said all the good stuff that you can't hear, and you said that's neither here nor there. Oh, yeah, look at that. I'm funny. I don't even know it. I'm so funny <laughs> I, that nobody's laughing. Uh, <laughs> Uni Air 873. This is back August 24th, 1999. The, the, one weird thing about this, I don't have the pilot's names. So I'm not oh. I'm not going to say them. I, I couldn't find them. I don't know why that is. Different country, different time. Mm. Just It wasn't in there. Wait, what year was this again? 99. That's weird. Uh, it could also be just a privacy thing. Different country. Who knows? Mm. Regardless, the captain was 41 years old, former military pilot with 6,532 flight hours, 1,205 of which were with the McDonnell Douglas MD-90. On that day, he had racked up Total service time of 5 hours, 45 minutes, with total flight time of 2 hours, 50 minutes. The first officer was 35 years old, with 5,167 total flight hours, of which only 96 were in the MD-90. So this was a, a new plane to mm. And we talked about this before, common. You got one pilot with lots of experience and a new one. You got to start somewhere. Which is maybe why after landing, you know, the, the captain kind of gave him notes. Like, you came down a little too fast. The landing was kind of bumpy. And then actually after uh, landing, the captain took over the controls. Anyway, they were flying McDonnell Douglas MD-90. This is a, I don't think it's really used much anymore, not for passenger travel. It's a twin engine plane. The engines are at the back of the plane. That's kind of what, how you can distinguish these planes from other ones. It's like a stretched version of the MD-80, which so, so it makes it kind of the third generation of the DC-9. I, I personally... Me, as a traveler, Chris, I never liked flying on these planes. <laughs> Why? I always felt they were a little cramped. 
Mm. And they were never very comfortable. These planes, like lots of times when you get on like a single aisle plane, like a 737, you know, when you're walking down the aisle, there's three seats to your left and three seats to your right. Typically in like the MD-80 and MD-90s, there's two seats on the right and three on the left. Easy way to tell if you're inside the plane. Uh, I like that though, because it's not a middle seat. That's true. But there's no good seats. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's just my personal personal preference. Um, as far as like a passenger mm-hmm. and the MD-90, you know, competed with the Airbus A320 and the Boeing 737. The A320 and 737 are a lot more prolific. You really don't see the MD-80 or MD-90 flying around uh, anymore. In fact, the MD-90, they stopped making it in 2000. So huh. they, they really don't even make this plane anymore. And like I said, it was an, the, an upgraded version of the MD-80, which they made between 1979 and 1999. So both of these planes got kind of phased out at the turn of the century. Okay. Wailin Airport, it's a commercial airport that's located in a civilian area of the Chashan Air Force Base in Xincheng, Wailin County, Taiwan. So it's got flights to Taipei, Kaohsiung, and Taichung. In 2017, it served 235,000 passengers, which made it the 10th busiest airport in Taiwan. So... Not terribly busy. It's, it's a bit of a weird airport because it's for both military and domestic civilian use. Hmm. That is weird. Yeah, it's kind of a mixed use thing. It was originally just a military gravel airfield. Then in 1962, they, they opened it for domestic civilian use as well. They kind of upgraded it. Of course, as you can imagine, it does cause some problems because sometimes... Flights are canceled because of war game exercises, and you know, it's, it's it's just it's just a weird setup. A reason why they probably don't normally mix. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like no, this is my airport. No, it's my airport. <laughs> just just it's like you, you two just share, just get along. <laughs> We're gonna turn this plane around. <laughs> so this accident aircraft had taken off from Sungshan Airport in Taipei at twelve sixteen p.m. And it reached a cruising altitude of 10,000 feet. So it didn't even get very high. Again, this is a really quick flight. It just kind of like yeah. hugs the coast between Taipei and Wailin. Like a 20-minute flight. I think they normally budget like 30 minutes for this flight. But on average, it, it took like 20 minutes. It's, it's even quicker. Like for us in Austin, we frequently have to connect in Dallas and Houston. It's probably mm-hmm. even quicker than that, you know? Uh, okay. That's real quick. Yeah, super fast flight. I feel like those flights are more... You spend more time getting on the plane and off the plane than you do... Yeah, it's really annoying. (laughs) It's really, really annoying. So, you know, after taking off, after about five minutes, they reached their cruising altitude of 10,000 feet. So not even that high. So nine minutes after takeoff, Wailin Approach Station was contacted to guide the aircraft via radar to begin their turns and descent. And at 1230 and 50 seconds, the aircraft reported visual contact with the airport. And this at 1230, so that's 14 minutes after takeoff, they see the the destination airport. (laughs) <laughs> and they were given permission for a visual approach onto runway 21. And they switched their communications over to tower at that point. And at 12.36, the aircraft landed. And then two seconds later, the cockpit voice recorder stopped recording. And that's because in the last two seconds of the recording, an explosion followed by an echo and an utterance of surprise from the first officer can be heard. So presumably, Ooh. there was an explosion maybe that started the fire and stopped the cockpit voice recorder. At 12.37, the tower advised the approach radar controller that Uni Air is having trouble on the runway. And at 12.37 and 50 seconds, the captain issued a mayday call. At 12.42 and 40 seconds, the tower responded to the request from the approach radar control saying, 
The aircraft has a rupture and the fuselage is in smoke. The aircraft stopped at about 6,300 feet from the end of runway 21. The black box suggested nothing irregular up until the moment of the uh-huh. explosion. Weird. Weird. So do you have any gut reaction or gut thoughts about that? Like everything seems fine. They land. Nothing irregular on the black boxes until there's an explosion. Until there's an explosion? Right. And you say that as in there's something that like it picked up in respect to like the... Well, yeah, the cockpit voice recorder picked up the sound of an explosion. In the okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's, I mean, was the plane still taxiing? Yeah, they were still moving uh, down the runway. They, I don't think they had even fully stopped decelerating. They were still on the runway, slowing down to stop to, to then exit the runway. I, got, I don't know. I'm just going to throw stuff out. I mean, part of me is like, I think a natural instinct is to guess like a bomb or, or some sort of attack. Other thing is, there was some sort of issue with it taxing and it like hit something yeah, or it, something got sucked into the, into the plane or I don't know. I think that those, both of those theories are really good guesses. Okay. I'll take yeah, it. Yeah. I think <laughs> thinking about a bomb or something getting ingested into like the engine maybe. Right. I will say, like I, like I mentioned earlier, the MD-80 and MD-90 have their engines at the very back of the plane. So like kind of back near where the mm-hmm. vertical stabilizer is. The explosion was actually heard in the front section of the passenger cabin. You didn't know that. So, mm, okay. So that kind of eliminates the, the theory of the engines, right? If the engines are at the back and the explosions at the front, probably wasn't something getting ingested into the engines. You know what, Gus? I, sorry, this is a tangent. I feel like you're Sherlock and I'm, what's his? Uh, Watson. <laughs> Watson. And you're, <laughs> you're like, well, what do you think? You know, like, and then Watson always has this thing. And then Sherlock told me, well, <laughs> well, what you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what also helps me play Sherlock is that I've already seen the report and I already know, I already know the answer. Yeah. Uh, I don't, sure. I don't have to deduce I think, it. I think you'd be Sherlock anyway, though, but go on. Sorry to do <laughs> So Watson, <laughs> the explosion was heard in the front section of the passenger cabin, followed by smoke and then fire. A passenger was struck by fragments produced by the explosion. And the pilot, you know, immediately braked and brought the aircraft to a stop still on the runway. Then, you know, they lowered the passenger evacuation slides, initiated the emergency passenger evacuation, and, you know, began calling for help. When they received the call, the fire squads at both Wailin Airport and the Air Force Wing rushed to the scene to extinguish the fire. The fire was eventually put out at 145, and the upper part of the fuselage was just completely destroyed and 90 passengers plus the crew of six were able to evacuate. There were some notable people on this flight. Oh. There was the fa- some family members of a former, like kind of a famous athlete from Taiwan were on this flight. There was a Taiwanese decathlete named Ku Chin Shui, whose family was on here. And his brother, by the name of Ku Jing Shi, was the, the person who died from his injuries 47 days after the accident. He was seated in seat 7B, and his death was caused by second and third degree burns that he sustained over 45% of his body, which resulted in like a poisoning of the blood and eventually cardiopulmonary failure. On top of that, besides his brother, Ku Chin Shui's mother, sister-in-law, and nephew were also on the plane. They survived. They just suffered some burns. Okay. The other fatality is a little more complicated. There was a woman named Li Hui Jung who was seated in seat 8H who suffered a facial fracture, a head injury, and a hemorrhage in her skull. She was pregnant at the time and suffered a miscarriage of the 26-year-old fetus she was carrying. So that's the, the second fatality. Oh, 
her or yeah, the, the woman survived, but she uh, okay the miscarriage she suffered is counted as miscarriage, the second fatality. So there's several fragments from the explosion were found in the left side engine. However, the main framework, wings, and engines, and auxiliary power units all remained intact. So that kind of plays to what you were saying earlier about possibly something being ingested into the wings. What I imagine he happened here is, it seems like, based on what we've heard so far, there's an explosion at the front of the aircraft. The aircraft was still taxiing and moving. So debris may have shot out from that side of the plane. And then since the plane's still mm. moving, the left engine catches up to that point and ingests some debris. Okay. So based on interviews conducted with the aircraft's flight attendants, when the aircraft was rolling on the runway after landing, the L-1 flight attendant had just pressed the PA button to make an announcement when an explosion was heard. In less than two seconds, the passengers in the front rows of the main cabin rushed to the L-1 and R-1 exits to try to open the door. So those are the most forward exits on the left and the right side of the plane. That was fast, too. Yeah. I mean, it would be scary. There's an explosion and then a fire immediately. So of course people can get up and go for the door. The cabin chief tried to stop the passengers from opening the doors because she had not received instructions from the captain for emergency evacuation. Plus, the plane was still rolling. You know, oh. They can't just open the doors yet. And as a result of this explosion, the power got cut off and the cabin chief could not contact the captain using the phone anymore. So they communicated via the broken ventilation opening that was linking the cockpit. So they're kind of like yelling at each other through a window or like through a little vent. And the cabin chief asked whether to proceed with the emergency evacuation. And the captain was heard just calling evac, evac, evac. Then the aircraft stopped and the emergency evacuation proceeded. The cabin chief saw dark, thick smoke and immediately opened the L1 door after, you know, receiving these emergency evacuation instructions. Uh The inflatable slide raft at L1 failed to automatically inflate. Oh, no. The cabin chief turned the slide raft to armed when she was sure the aircraft had stopped. When the L1 door was pushed open the slide raft failed to open and properly inflate. So they had to inflate it manually. (laughs) After evacuating a couple of passengers, the cabin chief asked the L1 flight attendant to remain on board to help evacuate passengers and then left the aircraft to help evacuate the passengers by the slide raft. According to the cabin chief, the emergency exit light above L1 was on until the power went off. And after leaving the aircraft, she helped evacuate passengers using the slide raft on L1 and L4. So that's the one at the very back on the left side. Mm-hmm. As of that time, the aft door was not yet open. She estimated it took a little more than one minute to get the passengers off the aircraft, which is good. We've talked about that before. You yeah. want to get everyone off in ideally 90 seconds or less. Yeah. She then provided assistance to the injured and attempted to count the passengers. But how did it happen? How did it happen? Fire engines one and two were dispatched one minute apart at 1238. And as the fire engines were rushing to the scene, the control tower requested engine number one to take the number two entrance and remain on the ramp at standby. However, engine one didn't listen and <laughs> approached the scene from the center taxiway. At approximately 1239 and 30 seconds, fire engine one arrived at the accident scene to find the passengers had been removed. Then an Air Force water tank truck arrived and positioned itself by the left wing of the aircraft. And fire engine one began spraying foam from its turret type spraying gun to the left side skin of the aircraft from its position behind the left wing of the aircraft. And both the tower and the Air Force had asked the vehicle to move toward the front of the plane. The number two fire engine arrived at 1240 and stopped behind the right wing and provided assistance to the seriously injured passengers while spraying water Mm -hmm. to cool down the fuselage. At 1241, the tower and Air Force ordered number one and number two fire engines to move to the left side of the front part of the plane and help from there. And under the direction of the Air Force, the number two fire engine aimed at the emergency exit above the left wing. At 1249, number one and number two fire engines returned to the airport to refill. 
Number one was ready at 1.05 p.m. and returned to the left side of the aircraft. Number two fire engine completed its refill at 1.07, returned to the left side of the aircraft as well. And from there, it worked on the inside of the aircraft from the tail stairway to door L4 using its pressurized hose located at the front of the vehicle. And by then, the Air Force personnel had entered the aircraft from the tail stairway to search for more passengers. And they were unsuccessful because of thick smoke. Mm. At 1.16, the number one fire engine had to again return to the airport to refill. And firefighters used... Dang. Yeah, it's crazy to think about, right? You, you don't think about how they have to go back and forth to get more yeah. water to refill. I guess there's not like a fire hydrant in the Right. <laughs> and then firefighters used the number three engine to support the number two engine on the right side of the tail. At 1.26, firefighters and ground service personnel entered the cabin to check for people. Airport records state the fire was put out by 1.45. I just thought it was interesting to highlight how... Fire engines have to coordinate and go back and forth and get mm-hmm. water and be like, no, you go over there. And then they're, they're not listening. No. And they're like, no, we're going over <laughs> not here. They're there. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's not something we talk about very regularly. It's like, it's, it, I think it's interesting. People, you know, might not know about that stuff. The skin on both sides of the explosion point were ripped open along the rivet line. Although the cracks were of different lengths, the pattern was the same. There's obviously been some kind of explosion here. So, you know, they mm-hmm. need to investigate, what was this? Was there a bomb on the plane? You know, if it was a bomb, why this plane? Why, when it's on the, the ground, it's after it's already landed? The laboratory report actually showed no trace of explosion dynamite, suggesting that explosives could not have caused this explosion. Okay. So, they, you know, they go through, they look for explosive residue, and they don't find any, which is weird because there was very clearly an explosion. An explosion. <laughs> The area of the damage is not only extensive, but also evenly distributed, indicating it was a gas explosion of medium pressure lasting a longer length of time. They're trying to narrow things down to figure out what caused this explosion, what kind of explosion was this. According to witnesses on board, they heard the explosion, and some claim they heard more than one explosion. And of course, like we've talked about before, eyewitness accounts can be sketchy. People don't remember things accurately all the time, so you always have to take it with a grain of salt. So... People say they heard the explosion. Some people say they heard two explosions, or I should say they heard more than one explosion. And then they felt the pressure of the explosion. We've talked about that before, like a pressure wave expanding out. They believe that the explosion was first confined to a specific area, but the pressure built up exceeds the maximum capacity causing an explosion. And those who witnessed the explosion outside the aircraft recounted two versions. Again, eyewitnesses are unreliable. Yeah. Air Force personnel insist they saw the aircraft's skin rip open first and then thick smoke emerged from the hole. Hmm. Pilots of the Far Eastern Air Transport Corporation alleged they saw thick smoke come out from the third window, and then a few seconds later, the skin rip open. This version, however, does not match the fact that the fire at the scene of the explosion stopped around window three. So it's not entirely correct, whatever they say they saw. And there's no video. As far as I know, no. Okay. And there's also an AC duct in the neighborhood of the explosion that shows burn marks running from top to bottom that suggests the explosion could not have been created from outside of the overhead bin. So they're kind of starting to focus down now on the overhead bin at this point. Ooh. Just based on like the proximity and Uh the way that everyone's describing the explosion and how it happened. Yeah. The ripped open skin shows a visible mark of peeled paint in the center of the top section possibly caused by the impact of fragments from the damaged part or objects in the bin that were forced out by the explosion. The mark had an irregular shape, which was 8 centimeters in diameter, and cannot be the result of an impact caused by any fragment, such as a a longeron, a rivet, or AC duct, though it could have been made by objects in the bin, 
And this suggests the explosion could have occurred inside the bin, not in the small space between the bin and the airframe. So they're like focusing down really on the bin saying, it seems like debris exploded out from here. They eliminate that it did not happen between the bin and the airframe, Mm -hmm. that it was in the bin and there's irregular shapes caused by impacts that don't appear to be from parts of the plane. So whatever was in the bin, presumably, was also in a way kind of like shrapnel. Okay. Because of what actually happened in this incident, I'm going to kind of share things a little out of order here, (laughs) just because I need to to explain the end before I can explain how we got there. That's like a Tarantino movie. I was going to say, we're going to do a little Pulp Fiction here. (laughs) A report from the Aviation Safety Council stated that the cause of the fire was the interaction of two luggage items that happened to be in the overhead compartment. Oh, like... Like stuff that people have brought on board and put up there. Right. You could think of it like people inadvertently brought stuff and made a bomb in the overhead bin without meaning to. Yeah. I was going to say, in science fair terms, someone got some baking soda and someone brought some... Some vinegar. (laughs) Yeah. Some vinegar. In a way, yes, but way worse. Wait till you hear what it was. Coke and Mentos. Oh, Diet diet Coke and Mentos. (laughs) Well, it, it was actually way worse than that. Okay. Firstly... Gasoline had leaked from plastic bottles. What? Yeah. And secondly, a motorcycle battery had been jostled, causing an electric arc that ignited fumes from the gasoline. What? So someone had put gasoline in plastic bottles in the overhead bin, and someone, maybe someone else, had put a motorcycle battery in the overhead bin as well. And the motorcycle battery arced, causing you know, electric current, which ignited the gasoline fumes because the gas had started leaking. Why, why was someone... That's a great question, carrying, Chris. Yeah. Uh, to make matters a little worse, the motorcycle battery was also a little modified. It's similar to car battery where, you know, they've got terminals on them and you hook up you hook up to it and it helps start your car or in this mm-hmm. case, your motorcycle. This one had been modified a little bit so that there were wires running out of the terminals. They speculate that whoever had brought this had been using this motorcycle battery for a purpose other than starting motorcycles. Like maybe they were running lights off of it or like just using it to power something else. Oh, okay. So it had wires yeah. hooked up to it. So that's what made it more prone to arcing and creating this electrical current, which ignited the gasoline vapors. Because remember, like I said earlier, the landing was a little rough. So maybe, again, speculation. Oh, yeah. The landing, but don't, but don't. Right. Maybe the, ba- the motorcycle battery jostled around and started causing an arc. Maybe the wires got close to each other when there was the rough landing which created a little spark that ignited the gasoline fumes. Working theory at this point. So remember I mentioned Ku Chin Shui, whose family was on this flight? He wasn't on this flight. He was the athlete. Mm -hmm. Prosecutors accused him of asking his nephew to take gasoline on this flight. Why? That's that's a great question, Chris. They, They accused him of asking his nephew to take gasoline on this flight for some reason. Ku was, uh, you know, like I said, a Taiwanese decathlete and pole vaulter, and he'd medaled for Chinese Taipei at the Asian Athletics Championships six times. So the working theory now is that this famous athlete asked his nephew to take bottles of gasoline on the flight. for Like maliciously to start this fire? Well, now that's what they have to figure out. Like, wh- why? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Why him? Why would they? I, I don't really know where else to mention this. So I'm going to mention it right now. So... Okay. The way they figure this out, the investigators have to go through all of the security footage at the Taipei airport and see okay. who brought gas the gasoline 
from what they can tell, they, they're able to piece together pieces of the bottle. The gasoline was actually put into a bleach bottle. So they have to figure out who brought these bleach bottles on the plane that really had gasoline in them and not bleach. So they have to watch back through all of the, uh, the footage and they find that athlete that I mentioned, Kuchin Shui, going through security and they inspect his bags and they, they pull out some camping fuel, some insecticide and some bleach bottles. And so <laughs> the, the, the security agent confiscates the camping fuel and the insecticide and says those aren't allowed on the plane, but puts the bleach bottles back in the bag and lets the athlete go off, who then presumably passes off the bag to his family members to take. And so they go and they interview the security officer and they ask him, we know you confiscated the camping fuel and the insecticide. Why didn't you do anything about the bleach? And he's like, oh, we know there's bottles of bleach. He told me that the family was going down to open their cabin up and they needed to clean it out. And that's why he was taking bleach. Okay. Yeah, just weird. But security protocol at the time dictated that the officer, the security officer should have opened up the bleach bottles, you know, and smelled it and verified that it was bleach. Oh, oh, oh. That's why, that's why they teach you to waft in, in chemistry Ex- when you're a kid. Yes, exactly. I'm glad you brought it up. I was going to say that too. You're not supposed to inhale chemicals. Correct. But the security officer said he, he recognized the athlete. He's famous there, right? And was like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, it makes sense. They're going to go open up their cabin. He's just taking some bleach, which I think is weird anyway. Why don't you just buy bleach when you land? But anyway, <laughs> he said he had bleach. It was bleach bottle, so I just let him through with it. Of course, Ku Chin Shui denies this. He says, why would he intentionally give gasoline to his family? As we know, his family members are on the plane. Why would he give them gasoline in a bleach bottle? He says he knows it's dangerous. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, what's his motivation? Right. Yeah. It, 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 it doesn't follow logically. Unless he doesn't like his family. <laughs> or maybe someone put gasoline in the bleach bottle and he didn't know and he didn't check and he just grabbed bottles of bleach and put it in. Maybe he bought it like that and there was a mistake and someone had returned a bottle of bleach, but refilled it with gasoline and it got put back on the shelf. That's weird. Right. Who knows? We're going to get into that a bit later. So that's why I said I have to kind of spoil the <laughs> ending to get, get back around to there. So now, dear Watson, <laughs> we must just... <laughs> Okay, so now we're going to rewind back. Now that you know the ending, we have to rewind back and go through the investigative process to see wh- where we end up, right? What gets us there? Yeah. Most of the time, shaving feels like a chore. It's time-consuming, and if I'm using a cheap razor, which, I mean, let's be honest, is the case most of the time, I end up with a few nicks and cuts by the time I'm done. That's why you got to meet Henson Shaving. Henson Shaving is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that has made parts for the International Space Station and Mars Rover. Now they're bringing precision engineering to your shaving experience. Think about it like this. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more wobble, the more wobble, the more nicks, cuts, and scrapes. Bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes metal razors that extend just 0.0013 inches, which is less than the thickness of a human hair. That means a secure, stable blade with a vibration-free shave. I've got a Henson razor. It has been absolutely revolutionary for shaving. It's really sturdy, gives a clean shave. I love how smooth and comfortable it is. It's like night and day. I, I would avoid shaving before as much as possible just because I didn't want to end up nicking my face or having cuts. And it was just not a pleasant experience. And now with the Henson razor, it's totally like night and day. It is so much smoother, so much better. You got to try it. Uh, and the Henson razor is affordable. Once you buy your first one, it's only about 3 to $5 per year to replace the blades. How cheap is that? It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com slash blackboxdown to pick the razor for you. Use code 
black box down. You'll get two years worth of blades free with your razor. Just make sure you add them to your cart. That's 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash black box down and use code black box down. Most of the time, shopping for birthdays and other celebrations is fun, but when it comes to shopping for those closest to me, it's a struggle to find a meaningful gift they'll actually love. Luckily, Aura Frames are a great, thoughtful option for any gift-giving occasion. Every Aura Frame is thoughtfully designed to fit any decor style or premium touches like stone-inspired textures, hand-speckled finishes, and classic matting. Simply connect to Wi-Fi, use the free Aura app to add unlimited pics and videos from anywhere in the world with no fees ever. I've got a frame on my desk right now. I love it. It's super simple to set up. Just takes a couple of minutes. It's good to have a place to put the photos that I have on my phone. They just sit on my phone. Now I can just put them, you know, using the Aura app, easily load them onto the frame and boom, there you go. You can even preload frames with your favorite picks so they're ready to enjoy upon delivery. With over 3 million users, it's safe to say the Aura magic is very real. If you're like me, you can give someone a, a frame and just preload it with tons of photos of yourself. That way, whoever you gift it to, it's like multiple gifts. They get the frame and tons of photos of me. Win-win. It's named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter, New York Mag, and Wired. Aura frames are the easiest gift for all the occasions coming up in your calendar and the perfect addition to your home. Right now, listeners can take advantage of Aura's best-selling Carver Frames at their lowest price yet this time of year at $149. Just go to AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. And listeners can use code BLACKBOXDOWN to get free shipping at checkout. Don't miss out on the gift of a lifetime. Terms and conditions apply. I'm sure you're like me. You've got tons of subscriptions for who knows what. Uh, I've got pretty much every subscription video service out there. I've got pet supplies. Just things that are easy to forget about, I guess I should say. I tried out Rocket Money, and I was able to actually find a video service that I haven't even used in months. Actually, I think it was like a year. Thanks to Rocket Money, it was super easy to identify it and cancel it and put that money back in my pocket. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about, and chances are you're one of them, just like me. Like the Stars app to just watch one show or that free gaming trial you never actually used. Rocket Money will quickly and easily find subscriptions for you. And for any you don't want to pay for anymore, you just hit cancel. Rocket Money will cancel it for you. It's that easy. Rocket Money also helps you manage all your finances in one place and automatically categorize your expenses so you can easily track your budget in real time. Also get alerted if anything looks off. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. Stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions. Manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash blackboxdown. That's rocketmoney.com slash blackboxdown. Rocketmoney.com slash blackboxdown. Looking at the wiring diagram and exhibits left at the scene show that there were three potential detonation mechanisms that could have caused this explosion. Mm -hmm. It could have been a spark in electrical wiring or equipment of the aircraft. The wiring bundles in the neighborhood of the detonation point come in bundles that do not pass through the bin and power supply unit bundles. The latter is inside the bin and in connection with the power supply unit. And inside the bin, there's a power supply stabilizer for the lighting. So the second potential detonation mechanism is the chemical oxygen generators, which we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. This is a closed little canister that contains oxygen-containing compounds, and it's wrapped to keep it from contacting other system wiring. And when in use, the trigger is pulled by the wire, release oxygen chemically, forming an autosufficient oxygen system of high temperature. So we've talked about these before. You call them like little ovens. <laughs> uh, they're like little canisters. And when you normally, when you pull down on your mask, 
you pull off the little pin that activates them. They create a chemical reaction that generates oxygen, but the byproduct is that they get really hot. Normally, there's like little shields to keep them from burning or melting anything. But if they just list it as it was there, we know that they get hot. It's possible that this was another culprit for causing the detonation. Hmm. And then the third option that they come up with is a spark in the battery in short circuit. So this is going back again to that motorcycle battery we talked about before. They found this battery under seat 5C and the monocore metal wires that were scattered on the runway are not a type of wire used on any aircraft. They did some microscope tests and further comparisons were conducted on both the battery and the metal wires to show that the battery was damaged by some kind of external force and the remaining wire around the polarities and scattered metal wires belonged to one conductor. All this is to say they found wiring fragments on the runway. They were able to verify that these wiring fragments were not from the plane and had been attached to this battery. Battery? Right. So the, maybe the bump bump heart of the rough landing? Right. So maybe the rough landing caused these wires to come close, caused an electrical spark, which caused the gasoline vapors to ignite, caused an explosion, which threw the wires clear and you know caused the battery to end up over under seat 5C. And the investigation determined the point of detonation came from the overhead bin above seat 8B. And remember, at way, if we rewind way, way, way back at the beginning of this episode, I said that the passenger who died was seated in seat 7B. Oh. Which, so that would have been really close yeah. to 8B, which also, if you put stuff in the overhead bin, you normally put it right by where you're sitting. Mm-hmm. So again, that's, that's kind of circumstantial, but it's all kind of like piecing together. So they found an exploded blue-colored bottle containing bleaching liquid under seat 7C. There was soft and semi-transparent material located on the inside of the bottle's neck, and gasoline was detected on the inner wall. So this is presumably those bleach bottles we talked about before. They found the fragments of the bleach bottle, and they detect gasoline inside the neck on that inner wall. That's so weird. And this is, of course, in addition to the motorcycle battery that was found under seat 5C. So then the question now is like, if if this is what they're assuming, Mm -hmm. how did the gasoline get out of the bottle? If there was gasoline in that, what was formerly a bleach bottle, how did gasoline or vapor come out to cause this explosion? If it was close, bleach bottles are made to keep in fumes and stuff too. So if it was close securely, how did this happen? Sometimes bleach bottles also have like that childproof cap where you have to kind of squeeze it to be able to you know, get it to open. They can squeeze the sides and twist at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, of course, they send it off to labs to do some tests on it. The tests show that although the bottle was sealed, after prolonged explo- exposure to gasoline, leakage may have occurred in minimum concentrations that would still not invite any explosion. Invite any explosion. Again, this, <laughs> this reports in another language. We're dealing with a translated <laughs> version, so sometimes it sounds, a, some of the words are a little weird. Or they, they translate strange. So in order to reach the minimum concentration to ignite the liquid, it may have escaped due to accidental loosening of the cap, squeezed loose during handling, or the liquid simply leaking from the mouth of the bottle. Tests show that in a short period of time, gasoline contained in a bottle may evaporate into the air and ignite if significant concentrations have built up. So reconstruction of the same environment of the bin. Remember, again, so we're talking about enclosed environments. This is in an overhead bin, which is an enclosed environment. So reconstructions of that environment of the bin, having a bleaching liquid bottle containing gasoline, the same volume, 
allowed them to check whether a battery of the same type could cause a short circuit to ignite the leaking gasoline. And if the detonation pressure recorded from the experiment is the same as you know what they can determine happened on the plane. <laughs> so this is this is this is like high school science. It really, really like, is. Like it's none of this is complicated. It's like a, a car battery and some bleach and gasoline. It's like yeah, and so like, can can you recreate this other thing using these yeah. these items? I think another important thing to mention here. I don't know if this is ever stated anywhere in the script that I have written in front of me. Obviously, gasoline and a motorcycle battery like this are not allowed on a plane. Uh, yeah, they should have been caught. Like someone during the screening process, you know, obviously if someone looked at the bleach bottle. They should have realized it was gasoline and not allowed it through. Uh-huh. Someone nowadays you can't pass through with liquid like that anyway. Uh, and also, this kind of battery would not be allowed to be taken into the plane like this. Yeah, and I didn't know if that was a thing where it's like back then it was allowed. Yeah, I think the bleach would have been allowed back then. These days, it would not. The battery, no. It should have been caught by a person or should have been caught by the x-ray machine. It was just not detected. And it's obviously, it ended up in the plane because they found it. So the laboratory tests on evidence collected by the Criminal Police Bureau revealed bleaching liquid and softener bottles containing a flammable material, gasoline, were on board the aircraft. The motorcycle battery found at the explosion scene shows metal conductor fragments on the polarity rod that is of the same material as the metal conductor found among fragments on the runway. And that's just to say what I said earlier about how they found wire fragments on the runway that match wire fragments on the battery so they know that they went together because this kind of wiring is not used on a plane. The analysis conducted by the Chungshan Institute of Science and Technology indicates that a short in the battery could have ignited the vapor. Gasoline leaking from the bottle filled the bin and vaporized. The gas vapor ignited when the battery short circuit. So there was a leak. The gasoline vaporized, became, you know, more prone to being flammable at that point. And then the short circuit happened, which caused the explosion. This is wild. Yeah. The Civil Aeronautical Administration fails to assign responsibility for hazardous material management to any agency. There is no agency responsible for systematic compilation of hazardous material processing regulations prepared by the International Civil Aviation Organization. The security inspection systems available in the airport fail to detect illegal containers or identifying the liquid they contain. The monoscale x-ray instrument depends on manual reading for materials of potential hazard. The security inspection system does not meet the physical requirements and additionally demands additional security inspectors and a heavy workload. So just kind of saying that the system was a little subpar and requ- require, as a result, put more work onto the inspectors. Some new recruits lack proper security inspection training and initial training on specific materials. There is also no annual training on physical testing of hazardous materials. Training records show only attendance and no review records, therefore preventing accurate assessment of trainees. Poor training by senior personnel results in incompetent inspectors, which is what you do not want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I guess also just eliminating liquids onto a plane makes it so it's like you don't have to test for see what kind of liquid it right. is. You just And it's crazy to me that their test was, yeah, just smell it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why don't you smell it? Yeah, uh, waft it ideally. And even then, man, yeah, yeah that's, that's crazy to me. One last little note here. The prohibited motorcycle battery. <laughs> went, what was that? So I was just imagining that like, oh, let me check the handbook. Smell it. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. That's just, yeah. Well, mm, what does that smell like to you? Like you pass it around. Now they're all just <laughs> getting high on gasoline. Yeah. Fumes. 
And then the one last note on here, the prohibited motorcycle battery went undetected by the aviation police instruments and the bottle gasoline passed by the inspector. Again, they just missed it. It's a, it's a motorcycle ba- battery s- smaller than a car? Yeah, it is smaller than a car battery. Okay. But it is a 12-volt battery similar to what you would get or what you would have in a car. So I'm just imagining, like, how do they... But I guess if it's smaller than a car yeah, battery... Yeah, it looks similar to a car battery, but it is it is smaller. Okay, I looked it up. Yeah, it's like a good bit smaller. Yeah. Now, we told you the end. We went through the the, the, the thought process and the experimenting mm-hmm. process to get there. Now we got to go back... Again, to that athlete, Kuchin Shoi, who was accused of giving bottles of gasoline in bleach to be carried onto the plane along with this other stuff. He was actually convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Oh, my goodness. Upon appeal, the sentence was shortened to seven and a half years. However, it kept going on and on through the court system. And after a fifth retrial, he was actually declared not guilty. That is... It, it, did they ever have, like, a motive? No, there was never a motive. And like I said, Kuchin Shoei always said that this didn't make sense. Like, why would he do that? His family was on the plane. And the reason he was eventually declared not guilty after the fifth retrial is that they showed that it was possible that maybe the gasoline came from somewhere else. They couldn't, like, definitively 100% beyond the shadow of a doubt say it was in those bottles, even though... It seems like almost certainly that was the source of it. There was uh-huh. a tiny bit of ambiguity in it. And, you know, we've talked about many times how these reports are. They have to be yeah. rock solid. So, yeah, he was eventually found not guilty after a fifth retrial. You know, it seems unbelievable. Why would you do that? Give gasoline to your family members who are going onto a plane. The only thing I can think is maybe he didn't know. Maybe someone else had put gas in there. You know, like, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll, I don't know if you do this. I'll sometimes repurpose containers. It's like, I don't want to throw this plastic bottle away. I'll just put something else yeah. in it. And yeah. Maybe someone forgot. I don't, I don't know. It is weird. Did they figure out who the, wait, who, who's the battery that was? They don't know that for certain. If I had to speculate, I would speculate they was also in the same bag with the. That's what I was wondering. Right. Because seem- then maybe they had a, a little motorcycle or something and they were like, it, it ran down. They're like, oh, we'll bring the batteries and the gas for it. Well, it, it's not because of that that I think. The way that it had wires on it, it seems like it was being used to power oh, something Oh, yeah, that's else. Right. right. That's right. That's right. And if they were going to a cabin, maybe the electricity wasn't on yet and they were going to run some lights. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, there's no way to know that. I don't know. <laughs> and they never said anything. And No, because the investigation couldn't find any evidence of who brought it on board. So they can't say whose it was or where it was. And nobody claimed responsibility for it. Yeah. So it's it's unknown. Speculation, pure speculation. It was probably uh-huh. in the same bag with everything else, with the uh, the the bleach and the insecticide and the camping stove fuel and all of that stuff. It was probably in there. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, but you can't. Pr- you need to be able to prove. Yeah, it. it just seems like it would have been there with everything else. So, so that he he was still an athlete. He was a famous. Athlete. He was retired by this point. His last international competition that he won at that I can see here was 1991. So presumably he had been he'd probably been retired for a few years by this point. Uh, oh, that's right. I do remember he was a teacher at this time. He had uh, retired from athletics and, and was a teacher. That's right. But yeah, that's that's it. How, how long was he in jail? I don't know if he was in custody the entire time. You know, the incident happened in 1999. The fifth retrial, when he was finally cleared and declared not guilty, didn't happen mm-hmm. until 2011. Wow. So what, 12 years after this incident. And what was he... How, what was he- 
How long was he supposed to be in jail? The first time he was convicted to 10 years. Then after appeal, it was shortened to seven and a half years. And then eventually after the fifth retrial, he was found not guilty. Wait, but so wouldn't he have already been out of jail at that point? Yeah. I guess it, I th- maybe if the trial took a long time, but maybe he... Yeah, but I think also it's, it's a matter of fighting to clear your name. Yeah, yeah, clearing his name. So what was he charged with, though? Like, what was like the... Is it like negligent or... or, Because it didn't seem intentional, right? Right, but it's still some kind of negligence, like you said. I don't don't know because obviously the laws are different in another country. So I don't know exactly what charges he faced. Hmm. All around, it's a weird incident. and, And I feel like it ends kind of without a ton of... Like a hundred, like satisfaction, like not a hundred percent. This is exactly what happened. There's uh-huh. a really good working theory as to what happened, but how did yeah. you get there? <laughs> like, <laughs> how did the gasoline end up in those bottles and end up on the plane? Presumably, again, he was cleared at the fifth retrial because he said it's possible the gasoline came from somewhere else. But it seems like it came from these bottles. Just really, really bizarre. I will post some image. There are images of this plane on fire on the runway, which is like the thick smoke coming out of it. I'll post those on social media. You can check them out at Black Box Down Pod. Really, really bizarre one all around. It is. This is just, this is weird. Yeah. Don't take gasoline and bat- and motorcycle batteries on uh, on planes, please. And don't sniff it either. And don't sniff it. <laughs> all right. But that's it for this episode of Black Box Down. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with uh, another episode. Oh, one last thing before we go. Don't forget, if uh, you're looking for a new podcast obsession, both Chris and I are in a Dungeons & Dragons podcast called Tales from the Stinky Dragon. You can mm-hmm. listen wherever you get podcasts. You don't have to know anything about Dungeons & Dragons. It's a family-friendly, just try to kind of keep it loose and fun, comedic story. Yeah, and we just started a new campaign storyline, so it's perfect time to check it out. Yeah. It's 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 a great show, and we, we love making it and want to share it with people so please give it a listen like chris said we just started something new there's no like backstory you have to get caught up on there's a whole campaign you can listen to if you want but that's independent from the new one we just started tales from the sneaky dragon just go check it out yeah all right bye bye